0: Hi, we're here from Curiosity.com to help you get smarter in just a few minutes. I'm Cody Gough.
1: And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you'll learn about the woman who discovered pulsars and why they matter, and why learning styles don't exist. You'll also learn about cell-sized robots in the first edition of our Microscale Mondays mini-series. Let's satisfy some curiosity. The discovery of pulsars was a huge step in advancing our understanding of the universe. But when the 1974 Nobel Prize in Physics was awarded for the discovery... The person who actually made the discovery wasn't even mentioned. Thankfully, that person finally received recognition in 2018. And the prize may help young scientists the world over. Plus, today's her birthday. So let's learn about pulsars to celebrate the birthday of Jocelyn Bell Burnell. She was a graduate student at Cambridge University when her team finished building a new radio telescope at the Mullard Radio Astronomy Observatory. They started collecting data as soon as it was finished, and her job was to analyze that data to the tune of roughly 700 feet of paper records of that data collected each week. Her job was to spot unusual signals, and she found one less than three weeks later, a faint pulse that disappeared and reappeared every 1.34 seconds on the dot. After spotting more of these pulsing signals, she and her thesis advisor started calling them pulsars. Pulsars are spinning neutron stars that emit powerful beams of radio waves from their magnetic poles. The beam is what Bell Burnell had detected in that first unusual telescope reading. Here's why pulsars matter. Because they're such extreme objects, neutron stars are nature's physics laboratories. They experience extreme gravity, a density beyond that of atomic nuclei, and incredibly strong magnetic fields. And we can't recreate any of those things here on Earth. The timing of a spinning neutron star, or a pulsar, can help us precisely measure these properties. Pulsars have helped scientists confirm a lot of things, including the fact that massive objects cause a distortion in space-time. That was an important aspect of Albert Einstein's theory of general relativity. Pretty big impact, wouldn't you say? When the 1974 Nobel Prize in Physics was awarded for the discovery of pulsars, Belle Burnell wasn't mentioned, since she was a graduate student when she made the discovery. She's admitted that at the time, she didn't feel empowered to fight the decision, But in 2018, she got some of the recognition she deserved in the form of a $3 million special breakthrough prize in fundamental physics. At the time, Bell Burnell said she was donating the money toward funding female, minority, and refugee students to become physics researchers and counter the unconscious bias she believes still plagues scientific research. Happy birthday, Jocelyn Bell Burnell!
0: Picture a robot that can conduct electricity, sense its environment, and change its shape— Seems reasonable, right? Well, now imagine that robot being the size of a human cell. Believe it or not, researchers are working on the technology to make that happen right now, and over the next few weeks, you'll be learning all about them on our Microscale Mondays mini series. Our guests for this series are Itai Cohen, professor of physics at Cornell University, and Paul McEwen, director of the Kavli Institute at Cornell for nanoscale science. And this week, we'll start with an overview of these tiny robots and how they're made. Here's Paul McEwan
2: computer technology has created uh, incredibly sophisticated devices with features down to really tiny scales. And because of that, you have the computer revolution. Uh, you have, uh, you know, all of the electronics that is uh, making this this podcast possible. Um, so we have really, really tiny electronic devices, but we don't have little robots. We don't have little things that can crawl around at the smallest scales. Biology does it. Cells, for example, or you can think of them as a, a paramecium, as a little tiny robot. But we don't have any equivalent that we can go make in uh, in the laboratory and then have go down and, and, and you know, interact directly with the paramecium. And so we decided we would try to build such robots.
3: Uh, when you think about a Boston Dynamics robot, uh, that's a three-dimensional device. It has screws. It has wheels. It has hinges. And one of the big challenges of making things at the micro and nano scale is to think about how you're going to build that if you don't have a tiny screwdriver and a tiny screw and a hinge and a post or whatever. So the strategy that we uh, devised really builds on some work that people had done in making origami-based robotics. And the nice thing about origami is that it's a two-dimensional fabrication, which means that we can steal effectively all of the technology that's available for manufacturing integrated circuits to fabricate our origami design. And then once we release our design, it can fold itself up into the three-dimensional shape that we want. And using that kind of technology, we can achieve hinges that are about 10 nanometers to 100 nanometers in radius of curvature. And that allows us to build robots that are on the order of microns to hundreds of microns. And that's about um, a thickness of a hair diameter or you know, just about the size of a cell.
1: So you said you steal some technology from the way circuits are made. Does that mean that these are basically like computer chips that are just turned into robots? Is that how you put the data on them?
2: That's right. Basically, they're computer chips with legs. Uh, And a lot of our job has been figuring out how to build the legs. Um,
3: And I should say that's a non-trivial thing because um, there have been people who have made uh, very small robots. And by that, I mean, you know, you have like a a helical corkscrew-like object with a magnet at the end that can rotate the corkscrew. And uh, in the field of, of microscale robotics, that's kind of where we've been. The big achievement here is the ability to fabricate the robot using the same technology that we use to fabricate our microchips. That allows us to build everything together, fold it up, and now we have literally a microchip with
2: legs. So on one hand, we have made very sophisticated uh, little robots with no legs that have a whole computer chip on them that we can release off the substrate. and. Uh, Even put it in the brain of a mouse, shall we say, to record temperature or what have you and report that information back. Um, The ones that we've made with legs that get up and crawl around have very simple brains. In fact, they have just a few little electronic devices on board. And we power them and make them move by shooting light at them, which activates them. So we haven't quite put all the pieces together, but we know exactly how to do it.
0: Don't worry, because we'll help you put the pieces together over the next few weeks on our Microscale Mondays mini series. The last voice you heard was Paul McEwen, and you also heard Etai Cohen. They're both physicists at Cornell University, and you can learn more about them and their research in today's show notes. Next week, we'll learn about the cutting-edge technology that makes it possible to make these micro-scale machines.
1: We mentioned this on a full-length episode of the Curiosity Podcast a couple years ago, but it bears repeating. Learning styles are a myth. I'm talking about the idea that different students' brains are better suited to different styles of learning. As in, some people might learn better from reading about something, while other people would learn better from being hands-on with a project. Even though decades of research show that it's simply not true, it's still an idea that lots of people have, including educators. That's a problem, because it can actually harm a student's ability to learn. So let's get into the science. The most popular model of learning style is known as VAK theory, for visual, auditory, and kinesthetic. It's one of lots of models based on the central idea that a given lesson's presentation should mesh with the student's learning style in order for it to be most effective. But as far back as 1970, education researchers confirmed that there is no evidence to support this idea. Despite this, as recently as May 2019, a survey of 700 people, including educators, showed that 90% of them believe that people learn better in their individual learning style. So why can't we seem to get this straight? Believe it or not, the pervasiveness of this myth probably comes down to culture, according to researcher Catherine Scott. In a 2010 paper published in the Australian Journal of Education, she pointed out that Western cultures tend to hold an entity view of people, which is the idea that traits are fixed at birth. Eastern cultures, on the other hand, hold a process view, where traits can be shaped by experience. The entity model predisposes teachers to decide on a child's learning style based on limited interactions – And that may influence the child's assessment of his or her learning style from that day forward. Studies do show that all students benefit when teachers adjust their teaching style to the subject matter and not the learner. So, for example, math taught visually or language taught verbally. That's not to say all students learn the same way. Everyone varies in their strengths, interests, and previous knowledge. And these do affect our learning ability. But as the research shows, spending time figuring out students' individual learning styles and educating teachers on how best to teach to those styles is the wrong way to go. Not only is it limiting, it also wastes time that could be spent on more effective approaches. Instead, researchers suggest the primary focus should be on identifying and introducing the experiences, activities, and challenges that enhance everybody's learning.
0: Before we recap what we learned today, we want to give a special shout out to some of our supporters for today's ad-free episode. Special thanks to Diane Carter, Eddie Young, Michael Kovic, Ryan Day, Ben Yurick, Tom Sayer, Reed, and Chase for supporting our show. So now let's recap what we learned today.
1: Today we learned about a legendary female scientist that finally got her due. Jocelyn Bell Burnell, happy birthday!
0: And that researchers are working on robots that are the size of a
1: human cell. And that learning styles are a myth that just won't die ever.
0: Join us again tomorrow to learn something new in just a few minutes. I'm Cody Goff.
1: And I'm Ashley Hamer. Stay curious.